Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Thank you, Christopher. My name is Tad Mitsui. My question is about a specific country, Syria. Current uh, president is supported by Christians and Alawite ma- ma- uh, minority Muslims. I wonder if this bureau will tackle that tricky question when dictator is protecting Christian minority. So is, are you asking whether or not this would be something that the office would potentially look at? Is that, I guess, given the mandate that's been announced to this point, it would be something that it would be interested in. I mean, my understanding of, of the office, is, as I said in the talk, is that it would be designed to protect uh, any religious groups being pers- persecuted, so uh, and not simply a short list of them. Whether or not it actually would is is the question, right? And so, when new regime comes in, it will obviously be supported by majority Sunni Muslims. Yep. And as it happened in Egypt and uh, in uh, Libya, minority Christians will be persecuted. So that's what I wanted to ask. Well, I, I think that would be a, a low-hanging fruit test, to be honest with you. I mean, because that's typically, or from based on what I've seen so far, those would be groups that this office would definitely be interested in because they're Judeo-Christian groups. For me, the real test would be whether or not this office would be interested in the protection of the persecution of other religious minorities. That, to me, is the, the real question. So, But, I mean, to get back to that point... Will the office even have the the budget and the the staffing and the capacity to deal with obvious examples such as that one? I mean, until until the office is up and running and we have some actual cases to evaluate it, because I'm not entirely convinced for a lot of reasons that I'd mentioned in the talk that they would even have much of an interest or much of a, a impact in a situation such as that. Personally, that's my opinion. Thank you very much for such a clear presentation, well-ordered, and an astonishing astonishing feat, I think. We haven't had in the history of this council, since I've been here at the beginning in 50 years or so, I don't think we've ever been asked to debate a myth. (laughs) And uh, the the value of the debate of the myth, of course, is that uh, it's what's not said and what is underlying what in fact is said. For example, this astonishing support of of the Harper government of Israel, astonishing thing, until you start thinking about it, this is pretty pretty cagey financially, and is it a religion, however, that we're debating, or is it pure politics, or are we trying to get at the, the, the Muslims? And the last part of my question is this. How are we to deal with the Muslim, non-Muslim issue around the world and growing around the world 
in terms of this myth, how can our Office of Religious Affairs deal with the, with the astonishing rise of growth of Muslimism in, in, in Asia, for example? But thank you again for such thank clarity of presentation on such a difficult subject. It's like grabbing a hold of a cloud. You can't get at it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty abstract because it doesn't really exist yet, not to mention all the other religious elements to it. Um, I think there's a couple of questions there. I'll try and answer them. Uh, I, I, I certainly don't want to – my perspective here and my, my reason for doing the talk today wasn't to call into question anybody's commitment to faith or commitment to religion or, or challenge roles of those institutions in our society at all. I mean, I, I, Stephen Harper, I assume, based on the things that he's said and the actions that he's done over the years, is a religious person, and I certainly wouldn't want to question his faith or question whether or not his faith should be questioned because of political things such as this, right? I mean, I think, you know, and I don't know him personally, but, you know, faith is one thing and partisan politics is another, and I know that when it comes to partisan politics, Stephen Harper doesn't fool around, so... Uh, my own opinion of this is that this is a very partisan political uh, policy and very much part of his agenda. So uh, hopefully that clarifies a little bit of those two things. Uh, as far as the question of the impact of the office uh, on anywhere in the world, let alone uh, questions related to Muslims or other religious faiths, I just want to reiterate again the, the focus of the, the talk was that I honestly don't think this office will have any impact. Uh, I'm not even sure it's even going to exist, to be honest with you, at some point. Um, right now, it's a convenient political issue. Um, I, I know people that work at Foreign Affairs, and I know the department fairly well, and an office with five people in it is not going to have any impact on policy. So uh, I'm not sure that addresses the larger question you were getting at there, but in terms of the impact of Canada... On, on this. Domestically, as an office, it's not going to mean much, and certainly our reputation in the international community is suffering, and it's not going to mean much either. So. Terry Shellington, uh, thank you for your presentation. Uh, I want to ask a question that I think my table group thinks is nuts, and uh, they're a very wise uh, bunch of people. So, uh, But uh, when I heard about the intent of this office, I wondered if there would be <coughs> some washover into domestic politics in terms of uh, uh, for example, uh, we've had a very lively debate in recent years over gay marriage and over um, sexual orientation issues, and evangelicals were sometimes restricted from saying some of the hard-edged things they wanted to say because of uh, hate laws and that sort of thing. And uh, I, Do you see any, any uh, washover uh, in that area that uh, would re reopen some debates and some... Um, some of the ugly stuff of, de uh, of the debate that was restricted because of, uh, um, uh, of the hate laws and so on. Then that's, I, if I make my question clear. Um, I'm not sure I completely follow it. I'll, just, I'll say one thing before you walk away from the mic. I mean, uh, and then maybe we can elaborate on the second point. But I, again, I just think this is, is partisan politics. This isn't for, this office isn't for evangelicals and the evangelical movement in Canada. Those people already vote for Stephen Harper. These are, this is for new voters. I mean, this is literally, they sit down at the table and they have their 25 or 30 ridings that they need to win a majority government or target for majority government. 
And Stephen Harper is a demographic guy, right? He looks specifically at the demographics of each riding. How can we tailor a policy for specific people who might vote for us in that riding? And it's not just foreign policy. It's immigration policy. It's crime policy. It's all of these things. So uh, <laughs> I think that's what's going on, right? So um, so I'm not sure that gets at the other yeah, question yeah, that you're yeah, getting you're addressing at. addressing my question. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think our friends the conservatives have put their foot in the bog again. However, I just want to speak from the, and ask your uh, opinion about international aid. I have done several uh, trips for CEDA and FAO around <coughs> the world, and I spent two and, two and a half years with my wife in Indonesia, and also worked for our church aid and development agency. And I find that very upset about what has been done to international aid. I'm also a member of the local Kairos Committee, which, as you know, also had funding cut. And my opinion is that uh, when we go to those countries, whether it's uh, as a government rep or as a member of an NGO, that uh, we don't we ignore really completely whatever the religion of the people are. We are not pressing to uh, promulgate Christianity, but although we may well be, as most of you here are, or be Christians. So I'd like you to know what you feel about why they're cutting international aid the way they are without looking at the longer-term benefits to be derived from. Yeah, the unfortunate answer to that is that international aid is always easy to cut and always has been by... Governments going back for decades. So the the Mulroney government had uh, made a pledge to commit 0.08 percent of uh, Canada's gross national product to development assistance, and we've never even come close to that. I think we're at 0.3 now, or something like that. So th it's not just this government that's cut international development assistance. What this government has done is certainly reoriented our assistance to people. Uh, up until the 1980s, all of our aid, or the majority of our aid, went to Commonwealth countries and. India was the number one recipient of Canada's development assistance for, for a long time, 20, 25 years. And the rest got sort of scattered around the world. The last 10, 15 years, the last 10 years anyways, it's been Afghanistan. So it's left very little aid to give to other countries. And what this, con what this government has done is taken away and tried to concentrate aid into a smaller number of states. And the big losers has been the African states, uh, where... Uh, there had been, uh, which had been previously a, a priority for the Kretchen government, uh, but again, that speaks to the, the the need to avoid the liberal brand of foreign policy. So, how can we differentiate ourselves from liberals? Um, but it, again, I don't want to blame them. They're not the first government to take what little aid is left over and, and try and put it in different places. But it's 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 the easy thing to cut, unfortunately. Thank you very much. Dr. Kahucha, for your balanced uh, presentation. Um, I just wanted to m make a couple comments. One of your concerns, and I think legitimately so, was what is the motivation for opening up this office? And, you know, I often ask myself that same question. I I've met a lot of people that are giving themselves selflessly towards the political refugees in, in here in Lethbridge. And I admire them so much. But you know, 
I bet if we really got under their skin, we would find out that not all their motives are 100% pure. So, yeah, there's a lot of what government does that isn't on the surface motivated by good intentions. But in spite of its fact, it may have some good effects. And uh, if I may just mention another point, um, yeah, maybe um, we should look at this issue because if I've recently read in a magazine which stated that there are 111 countries around the world that have been singled out, and I can't remember if it was Amnesty International or what group it was, that are involved in religious persecution. And 80% of that persecution is happens to be directed towards Christians. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is time that we stood up for Christians. Having said that, I'm negating my argument by saying, yeah, that's great, but you know, maybe he should be uh, helping political ref uh, people that are in prison, like the gentleman whose name I can't pronounce, who just got the Nobel Peace Prize last year and ended up in jail, is in jail in China. You know, maybe uh, it should be expanded, and I would certainly make that recommendation to the government. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, this religious persecution thing comes home because I'm just reading in this magazine that states a Catholic group in Montreal is being fined because it, it rented a municipal building. What was their crime? They held mass in that building. You know, and I think we're going to—we're losing f uh, religious freedom and political freedom, and other types of freedom all around the world. And yes, here in Canada too. Thank you. I'm—I'm yeah, I'm not. I hope I haven't misled anybody. I'm certainly not o opposed to an office of religious freedom. I think it's a great idea because um, there's clearly religious persecution. Throughout the world, and as just pointed out, we have some issues within our own country related to those issues as well. But uh, my my concern today is to point out uh, the ties to the political uh, partisan political agenda that's that's at play here. And if we're serious about protecting religious freedom and and trying to protect uh, religious groups being persecuted in other states, then we have to do it properly. I and mean, you can't do it with five people in foreign affairs and a five million dollar budget. So uh, I'm certainly not, I hope I didn't give anybody the impression here today that I'm opposed to an office that would protect religious freedoms. Uh, and, and that includes Christians, absolutely. Um, but it also needs to, in my opinion, needs to include all religious groups and, and not just Christians. That's the only point I was trying to make. Um, Austin Fennell here. Thanks very much for your talk. I found that really very helpful. And I give me some new tools to think about now. Um, I want to ask a question about the separation of church and state. At what point does this um, purpose that you're saying is the real reason for this developing of this office, at what points does it start to infringe upon the uh, separation of church and state? I think, to me, the measure that I pointed out in the, in the talk was uh, the distinction between protection and promotion. That, to me, is the line. When an office starts to promote particular religious perspectives, to me, that would be straying over that separation. Protection, I don't believe, does. I, and it's not my argument. That's Clifford Orban's arg argument from uh, the University of Toronto. 
So uh, being a secular state, I think we're well positioned to to uh, talk about this issue and to highlight problems in other states. Um, but when we start promoting religion or pr- promoting religious perspectives, whatever they might be, then I believe that steps over the line, personally. Um, hi, my name is Jordan. I'm one of Chris's former students. Um, I just, if we have difficulties... Um, stopping like genocide and other human rights violations around the world. Um, how do you think this office can protect human rights abroad? And my second part of the question is, uh, do you think this, this office will extend uh, jurisdiction uh, into domestic sovereignty issues? Um, the short answer to that, uh, I don't think this office, again, it has the, the capacity to have much influence. So, what it has to work with, what could you do with it? Uh, I think there's some things you could still do with an office with five or six people and a $5 million budget. I think the the main issue would be raising awareness uh, and probably raising awareness domestically uh, would be the realistic thing for this office to try and, and do. Uh, maybe ch- shift the culture a little bit in foreign affairs in terms of bureaucratic culture to maybe be more open to some of these issues of religious persecution, which foreign affairs has typically tended to ignore. So I think realistically that would be probably all that they can actually do. Uh, internationally, as I said, the two big things here are, are again, capacity and legitimacy, and we don't have either in those particular cases. So uh, Canada won't be infringing on anybody's domestic sovereignty. Hi. <coughs> Excuse me. Knut Peterson is my name. Chris, uh, could you relate to... Uh, other countries who may have the same kind of office that uh, Canada has, uh, or Stephen Harper has uh, established? Yeah, it's, it's uh, briefly mentioned in the talk. I mean, this is clearly modeled after the American example. Uh, in the American example, it's even more overtly political. I mean, as I mentioned in the talk, the American office is in the business of promoting religion. That's exactly what it does. And it obviously speaks to the rather strong political um, influence of the evangelical right in, in U.S. politics. So um, I don't think it would take on a similar, even if it became highly politicized, I don't think it would take on a highly similar uh, role in Canada. I think it would be, I'm not sure we have that kind of polarized religious politics in Canada. Uh, that's my opinion. But, um, uh, you know, you look at what the U.S., office has done. I mean, it's done exactly what I just said to Jordan. It's done a really good job of raising awareness of a lot of these issues. But again, straying over that protecting line into the promotion line, which if you believe in the liberal secular state, then that to me is somewhat problematic. Hi. Uh, Ian McKenna, do you think that uh, the money that we're talking about would be better placed in uh, the courts here in Canada, in dealing with these matters, in terms of religious persecution, yes, in in terms of that, uh, and and uh, and uh, and other matters, I, I'm sure as well, similar to that. Uh, I, I mean, five million dollars in the overall scheme of things is not a lot of money. It's not going to fix too many problems. Um, I mean, it's a lot of money to me, but <laughs> it's not a lot of money to government. So. I mean, you could redistribute it anywhere, and I don't think it would even 
have any significant impact to correct any sort of institutional deficiencies. Well, I, I can see the way it, it's not getting the impact. Uh, the, if we were getting impact, we would be giving uh, the uh, the money to the courts and uh, and make sure that they they ha they happen. And um, so that was really the, the the importance of the question: Is this particular thing a way? for the government to stay away from the courts because they're a bit afraid of them, <laughs> you know, when, when things come. And uh, that was the one of the issues, I thought. Uh, this government isn't, isn't afraid of the courts when it comes to prosecuting people for uh, the tough-on-crime agenda. So maybe that $5 million should be kept where it is and take some of the millions and billions of dollars that are going to be needed to build more prisons and and these other things for the, the tough-on-crime policy. So, I mean, I think the money could be there to fix the issue that you're talking about, but I'm not sure this is the Well, I think we're agreed we should get rid of it. Get rid of which? The, that, that particular thing that the government has now allowed, we, we should get rid of it if it's not actually doing uh, as good a job as the, the, the courts would be. The office, you mean? Yeah, I. You know what? I, I'm I'm been asked to talk about something that hasn't even been created yet. So, I, I'm one of those people that uh, will give it a few years, give them their five million dollars, and let them go do their their thing. And if it works out that they're able to have a positive impact on this issue, I think that's a fabulous thing. But uh, I I'm certainly again I, I hope this addresses the comment earlier. I'm not opposed to the concept of an office. I'm not opposed to a, the concept of an office that does what it should do in terms of protecting these groups in other countries. So I, I don't want to get up here and simply say we should dismiss the idea without giving it the opportunity to have some potential impact. I mean, ask me back in three years to talk about this, I'll give you a more definitive answer. But I won't be around three years from now, <laughs> okay. the way I'm sort of... <laughs> anyway, thanks. I hope, I hope you're wrong. I'll ask a question since there's a bit of a lull here. Um, if the purpose of this office is to um, get voters on a on our home turf, why are we focusing outwards? Is there a reason to look at foreign uh, issues to direct a, an internal vote? Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I think I think it's literally as simple as let's look at the riding of Mississauga Arendelle, which is a swing riding. It might go liberal. It might go conservative. So the Harper government and the Harper advisors, the conservative, and again, every every party does this. It's not just the conservatives. They look specifically at what who's in that riding, who already votes for us. Okay, we don't need to do anything for them. But who is in that riding that might vote for us through our polling data? And this government has reams of polling data. You know, what are the sorts of issues that might make them trend towards us? So, okay, I look at Mississauga Arendelle. I have a large Coptic Christian community there. Uh, whose parents and families might be being persecuted in Iraq or some other Middle Eastern country. Well, what what is it that we can do for them that won't cost us a lot of money, that won't actually mean anything in terms of policy, but might get them to come and vote for us? So, I mean, and it's just not just foreign policy. You're looking at all the writings. So immigration policy. I've said this before. I mean, what specific immigration policies can we have that might get those swing voters to come out and vote for us on Election Day? And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the difficulty, 
the, and I don't want to switch this to immigration policy, but I mean, part of the agenda here, part of the let's make it tougher for people to get to Canada here, isn't geared for white conservative voters who might think that way already. Uh, it's geared for the immigrants who have come here, paid the price, done things properly, and take issue with the fact that people might be shortcutting the system. So it's trying to mobilize those ethnic voters who are always traditionally liberal. For generations, ethnic voters were liberal because liberal governments allowed let them come here and sponsored them and et cetera, et cetera. So how do we get them back? This is That's another policy that looking at those ridings, especially with large ethnic populations, is something that they can do. So um, again, it's just one specific thing in, in very specific writings. Well, if there's no further questions, I think we'll call it a day. And thanks again to Christopher Kakucha for your uh, interesting presentation. Thank you very much.